Good morning, everyone. My name is Carly Wallace, and I just started at Christ Community a few months ago as the new office manager. Um, so just a little bit about myself. I grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina. I'm the youngest of three sisters, and we grew up in a Christian home with two wonderful parents who loved the Lord and taught us um, to love the Lord. But I really didn't understand what it meant to have a personal relationship with the Christ um, until I got to college. So I started my freshman year at UNC Charlotte, and even though it was really close to home, it just felt really far away from home. I was away from friends that I had been with for so long. It was a new place. I didn't know anyone around me, um, and it was my first time really just being out of the house and independent, and so it was a really lonely time for me, um, and it was a time that I decided, okay, I can either keep doing my own thing or I can just continue to walk with Christ and kind of figure out what this whole thing is all about. Um, and so luckily I chose to do that. I kept going to church with my family and I started to read the word more. I got involved in campus ministries, but still just something wasn't right at UNC Charlotte. Um, I wasn't happy. I wasn't finding a solid community that I was looking for. And I had come and visited a good friend at UNCW who was the first one who really mentioned to me, Hey, have you ever thought about transferring? And I was like, oh no, I haven't thought about that. I'm not stuck here at Charlotte. So I had applied to transfer and I got in and I came to UNCW my sophomore year. Um, and even though Wilmington was a brand new place for me, far from home, I only knew this one friend. Um, I just had this overwhelming sense of peace that this is really where I needed to be. Um, and once I got to Wilmington, that's when God really just started to work in my life. He surrounded me by an incredible community that just loved him um, and walked with me in faith and just showed me what it was like to love the Lord and to be surrounded by people who love him and love other people. Um, and I got involved in a campus ministry called Overflow. I was going to my small group every week. I was going to church with my friends. Um, and I was just had this deep desire to get to know the Lord more and just read the word. And um, that really just continued my next three years at UNCW. It was just such a blessed time to walk with such faithful people um, and to learn from them and be taught by them. And so fast forward to how I got to Christ Community, I graduated in uh, May of 2018, and I was looking for jobs. I knew I wanted to be back in Wilmington, but I didn't really know if that's where God wanted me to be. So I was applying to places here. I was willing to look in Charlotte, but I was kind of avoiding it, being stubborn. Um, and I had had a couple interviews at a place here in Wilmington, and I really thought that that was what was next for me. Um, and God closed that door, and I just remember being so upset because all these plans that I had had just suddenly were closed off. They were shut down. Um, and I remember praying that night, just being like, okay, God, this isn't what you want for me, obviously. And you close this door, but I'm going to trust you and whatever you have next for me. Um, and that very next morning, I got an email from Sarah Anderson who asked if I wanted to come and have an interview at Christ Community. And I was overjoyed. I was like, yes, when do you want me here? I can be there tomorrow if you need me. Um, and so I came and had my first interview at Christ Community and it went great. And not only did I have one interview here, but I had five. And so after my fifth interview with the entire staff, um, which was very intimidating, I was driving home, just praying, asking, all right, if this is what you want, just open these doors. I feel confident in this, but I still just don't know. Um, and I got a call on my way home and Sarah let me know that they were offering me the position and I was just overjoyed. Um, and God from then just kind of seamlessly worked out all the other details. He worked out a place for me to live within like a week. 
um, and just great roommates and when I was going to be back in Wilmington. And this was all during Hurricane Florence. So like, even though everything here in Wilmington was super chaotic, it just worked out so perfectly and smoothly, um, which was just another affirmation that this was where I needed to be. And so I've been here for about three months now, and I just absolutely love it. And I'm so thankful to work alongside a staff that is just so encouraging and um, loving to each other and to be a part of an incredible congregation that um, is just wonderful and really makes this church feel like family. So thank you for welcoming me here, and I look forward to getting to know each of you more. So thank you. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for Carly. Um, and uh, all the staff would say the same thing, that, that we have come to know her and really enjoy her. She has a great joy that she gives the office and a, an even better skill that she gives to her job that really becomes the foundation for lots of things here at Christ Community. Uh, and so I'm thankful for her and her um, efforts in the office. Uh, and I want to pray for her right now. So let's pray. God, we thank you for her and and Carly and her life and the way that you have shown your love through her family and through college and through the friends that she's been able to have, through her understanding of your word and, and through all of these things, your spirit included, that you would even lead her here to Christ community. Uh, And we are so thankful for her and um, what she gives us, what she contributes. We pray that you would uh, grow her even more in her faith. And even more as we go to the next step for Christ community, that, that she would um, team up with us in a great way, that we would find great unity on staff. And we pray for her faith, that you would show her uh, great things that you, um, that you are and that you will do in and through her. Uh, God, we lift her up to you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, God. <clears throat> Uh, by the way, if you uh, if you don't know Carly, you can just drop by the office at any time. She's always there, and she, you can just fill up her time with a conversation and, and ask her a hundred questions, and she'll love it. So um, it's not like she has anything to do, but um, <laughs> not true. <laughs> All right, before I start with the scripture, I have to say this. We have a couple in the church right now. I don't know where they are because I don't see them, but they were recently, oh, there they are. They're recently engaged. Will asked Lauren to marry him, and she said yes, and they're sitting there with some of their family members. So you can wave. Everybody wave at Will and Lauren, and uh, I hear they're getting married next week, so that's going to be a lot of fun. I think you can all plan for that. (laughs) That's not true either. All right, we're going to get into a psalm, Psalm 51. It's a psalm of David, and uh, this psalm is unique and different from many psalms. We know so much of the backstory of Psalm 51, so much that we can pinpoint exactly in David's life when he wrote the psalm. We can also pinpoint with precision why David wrote the psalm. And uh, some of you don't know the backstory. I think I need to fill you in. Let's just get all, everybody on the same page before we read Psalm 51. So, David is king, he's in Jerusalem, and this is the time in the spring when all the kings go off to war, and they do, they all go off to war, and David's job as king of Israel is to defend the borders, build God's kingdom, make it great. So he he goes off to war, and he joins his generals, and he works really, really hard uh, for the sake of the kingdom of God. However, we, we learn that this time, David doesn't go to war, he stays back. He sends everybody else to war, but he doesn't go. And he stays around in comfort, probably in laziness, sleeps in every morning at his palace. And one day he's walking on his roof and he sees 
a woman taking a bath on the roof. Her name is Bathsheba. And she's on the roof taking a bath. Not sure about that, but she's there. And he sees her as a beautiful woman. And his glance is re-glanced. And he begins to see how attractive she is. And in his lust, invites her to his palace. And they sleep together. And he sends her off the next day. And life just goes on as normal. A couple days later, Bathsheba sends David a letter. Three words on that note. I am pregnant. David panics. He feels the weight of his sin, private sin, about to be public. He's got to cover it up. His first move is to get her husband back from the battlefield he sent him to, for Uriah was her husband, and he had sent Uriah out with the generals to fight the battle that he was supposed to be at. So he brings Uriah back, two or three day journey, invites him to his palace, and Uriah said, hey, I was in the middle of fighting your battle. What do you want? Respectfully, king. And David says, hey, I want you to give a message to the general. Uh, And by the way, just go home tonight. You know, be with your wife. Have a little time, have a little fun. And Uriah says, what? No, my men are dying on the battlefield. I need to get back out there. This is an honorable man. Well, David's frustrated by this. The the, the next day he brings him back to the palace and says, Uriah, look, you really got to go home. No, I'm not going to go home. So he makes him drunk. David gets Uriah drunk. And in his drunken stupor, David hopes that in his foolishness, he would just go home and sleep with his wife and cover up his sin. And then the baby is kind of Uriah's, not David's. Remember, David has no interest in raising this baby. He wants to cover it up. Uriah refuses, even drunk, he refuses. David's pushed into a corner. What's he going to do now? Certainly the sin cannot become public. In David's mind, he says, well, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fix this. So he writes a letter, seals it, gives it to Uriah, who takes it to the general. Uriah delivers his own letter, his own letter to the general, David's own letter. And it says, you know, secretly, don't tell Uriah, I'm going to tell you this, but all the army should go forward into the, the, the place where the enemy is and rush them. And when the enemy responds, everybody pulls back. Except don't tell Uriah to pull back. It's a trick. And Uriah dies. So David inspired his entire army to commit murder. Hey, David fixed his problem. In his mind, it's covered up. Now Bathsheba, there's no indication in all of this that she wanted any part of David or any part of this at all. And the only thing we see her do is mourn the death of her husband. She cries. She's sad. And after those sorrowful weeks or months or however long it was, David made her his wife. And I can't tell you, it's not clear that it's against her will, but she became his wife. Now, fast forward eight months. Baby's about to be born. David's got a good conscience, clean heart. He's in his right mind. And his buddy Nathan comes to him. This is a prophet. And he says, Nathan says, Dave, we we got a problem in the kingdom. We have a problem in the kingdom. Dave's like, let's go. What's the problem? I'm in my right mind. My heart is clear. I'm good. What's the problem? And he says, there's a rich man who looked at his poor neighbor and said, I want your lamb. Even though I, as a rich man, have all this cattle and I can use it, I want your lamb for my feast tomorrow. So we went in and against the will of his poor neighbor, overwhelmed him and stole the lamb and killed it and ate it as a part of the feast. And David was angry. David was furious. His heart was filled with anger. And he says, I cannot believe this happened. Let's punish that man. 
Bring him to my palace. Who is this man? And Nathan, of course, you remember, says, you are the man. And then he writes Psalm 51. In that moment, he writes it. And this is what he says. Uh, Psalm 51 can be found in your pew Bibles, page 474. If you don't have it already, you can have it there. Um, And please stand with me as we read God's word together. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from the blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem that you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. And then bulls will be offered at your altar. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. You take a moment and sit down and and just reflect for a few moments on God's word. Being that this is the um, Martin Luther King weekend, uh, I I thought a little bit about the title of the sermon, The Culture of Repentance. And whenever you have a group of people that disagree with another group of people, uh, like there is in Wilmington even today, and has been over the years, uh, where communities don't get along, they don't see the same thing the same way, they, they can't seem to get on the same page and agree, Uh, And they fight a lot and they separate a lot. Um, A culture of repentance, especially coming from the church, is necessary. When Will and Lauren face their years together as a married couple, and as everyone here knows who's been married, a culture of repentance is necessary for any reconciliation, for any healing of a disagreement or fight inside that marriage. Even in the church that we, just in these walls with just us, we need to have a culture of repentance in order to make it as a church and grow as a church. And so Psalm 51 is going to help us as a community, as married couples, as friends, 
your relationship with your parents. It's going to help those interpersonal relationships and it's going to help us as a church grow and make it to the next step. A culture of repentance. Uh, I was at a conference called MLK 50 a couple years ago. And I read uh, some of the letters that Martin Luther wrote in, in prison in Birmingham. And here's what he said. And I'm reading them as if he's saying them to me. He's writing to uh, white leaders, but not just white leaders, white Christian leaders, which I am one of those. So I, I kind of heard him say some of these words to me. They say that I'm an outsider. They say my methods are unjust. They say to me, wait. Time will correct itself in due time. And then he says these words, I've been so greatly disappointed with the white church and its leadership. I remember reading that for the first time. It stung a little. I didn't want to hear any more. I mean, I'm not interested in someone criticizing me. And I started rationalizing almost immediately. Well, I'm a guy in 2018. I don't live back then. I was, wasn't even a part. Of, I wasn't one of those guys, right? I wasn't even born yet. Started rationalizing in my mind. He writes, I have wept over the church, but be assured that my, my tears have been tears of love. There can be no disappointment where there is not deep love. I am meeting young people every day whose disappointment with the church has risen to outright disgust. So I start, like I said, thinking about these difficult to read words and the conference was difficult to hear that the white church the white people that we have contributed to the problem even in 2018 contributed to the problem do you have patience to hear that kind of criticism against you do you have patience to listen when you're fighting with your spouse when you're fighting with your friend or your mom, or your dad, do you, do you slow down and just say, okay, hang on, Wh- what did I do wrong? How did what I do affect others? What? Do you have patience to hear, to listen? Or do you hear it and almost immediately turn around and run away? Psalm 51 is going to help us be patient and listen as a community, as a church, and in our interpersonal relationships. Listen to what Eric Mason says about uh, racial reconciliation. I don't want to stop at racial reconciliation. I've noticed that with Psalm 51, I can take an umbrella and open it even more widely than just racial reconciliation. The umbrella of repentance, because there can be no racial reconciliation without mutual repentance. He clarifies it's not just the white church, it's also the black church. We need to have a culture of repentance. And as we go through the psalm, we notice the line of thinking, like what David is thinking about as he meditates on what he's done and how to be restored in Christ, in God, and then how at the end he can open his lips and sing the praises of God and teach transgressors to come back to God. This is a whole process that David goes through, and it's immeasurably helpful to us today. So let's think about this culture of repentance. The first thing you'll realize is David talks and thinks about his sin. He's not impatient about it. He, he sits and meditates on his sin. He realizes his sin has a whole backstory. His sin has a whole backstory. And we're going to explain that. Let's look. First, his sin is original. 
And the word original is back up to where your sin actually started. Where did your sin that you committed start? So mentally, you're going back in your life. You're looking back. So why did I kill Uriah to cover up the affair? Why did I have the affair? Because I saw her and lusted after her on my roof. Why did I do that? Back it up. You know, I created my own zone of temptation by staying off the battlefield and in Jerusalem. Do, do you create, do you, Christ, do you create your own zone of temptation? Now, I know you could be skipping through life, staying on the, the, the straight and narrow, and temptation hits you over the face as a surprise. But you can also create your own zone of temptation. Teenagers, you probably should hear me say this. After 10 p.m. is the zone of temptation, right? If you want to stay in 10 to like midnight to 1 o'clock to 2 o'clock, that's, a, that's where a lot of bad things happen. And if your energy is to get there, be careful. Are you creating temptation that you don't need? Being alone with this device, being alone with a person of the opposite sex when you're not married to them, where is it unwise to create these little zones of temptation that, that will overwhelm you? David did it by staying home and going to his rooftop in leisure. So I want to I be careful in my life to not create zones of temptation. I can't handle all of them. I, I don't think I have the strength to, to get through it. So don't create those zones of temptation. That's a great lesson. Now, David's sin goes all the way back to that moment, right? But then in the psalm, he says, my sin goes even further back to the, to the moment I was born. Even back beyond the birth point is back beyond in the conception, in the womb. That's where my sin begins. So what, it, what David is saying is, when the affair happened, the sin that caused him, the, the sin of the affair grew for 30 years. So look at your heart. Is there a small part of your heart where you're disobedient in a small way that if you were to mention it to me or your community group or your wife or your friends, you say, hey, I'm, I'm sinning here like this. I watched two episodes of Office, not just one. I know. I pressed play on the second one. No one here is going to judge you. The person you're talking to watched 20 episodes of The Office. So, you know, it's just a small little thing. It's, I'm not saying watching two episodes is a disobedience, but you know what I'm saying? That little thing that you just kind of little bit, and it's just a little bit more than you need. It's a little bit more than you know God wants for you, but it's not a big deal. And it hurts no one today. But David is here to say, watch out. Those little sins, they grow. You take a seed... You go up to a, a sidewalk and you bounce the seed off the sidewalk. I'm going to crack this sidewalk with this seed. You stand there all day. Nothing's going to happen. The seed might break. But if you plant the seed in the soil where it's nourished and watered and fertilized, that seed grows in due time. The roots will lift that sidewalk and crumble it. That's the truth of how sin works in our lives. If you meditate on your sin, if you become an expert on your sin, you know this is true. And what it, it makes you do is it makes you go to your heart right now. You see these little weeds and you just start plucking them out. It's like, okay, this one, I don't need this. Zone of temptation, I'm, I'm avoiding that. It gives you wisdom so that these awful seeds don't grow into mighty trees. If you're sitting here today and you say, I never would do what David would do. I never would do that. It's a lie. 
That's not biblical. You can have an affair and then murder someone. You can do that. You're capable of that. And if you don't pluck these little seeds out, David is warning us, they might grow to mighty trees that create awful sins. So your sin is longer in the past. It's it's original is what David says. But not only that, David meditated on his sin. He realized his sin was self-blinding. Like between the point where he had the affair and killed Uriah and when Nathan came and visited him, that was eight months, give or take, you know, eight months. Let's just take a moment and marvel at the success that David had in blinding himself to the shame and guilt of what he had done. All the way to the point that when Nathan said something to him about his sin, you know what he said? I have righteous anger. I have a clear conscience to be able to judge a man who stole a lamb. That's a speck in someone's eye. He's ignoring the log in his own eye. You see that? You are your best deceiver. You're your best defense lawyer. Blame shifting, rationalizing, a refusal to think about what you did. So destructive. Do you realize that David didn't just think about what he did? He said, my sin is ever before me. What he means by that is, yes, I know what I did, but I also know how what I did affected other people. That's where you need to go. That's where your mind needs to go. How did your sin contribute to the problems in your society? It's, it's not helpful to have a discussion as a white person when you talk to a black person and they're saying, hey, civil rights isn't over. Hey, racism still exists in America. And you throw your hands up and say, it's not my fault. I wasn't even born. It's not helpful. What's helpful is, okay, let me think and ask you questions about how I might have contributed. Maybe I didn't cause it all. Maybe I'm not the starting point. But how could I contribute? When you're talking to a friend or a parent or a spouse that you just can't seem to agree with and you're just hitting these impasses, how much time have you spent thinking about their problems and their sin and how it affects you? Versus how much time do you spend thinking about how your sin has affected them? We as Christians, we need, in order to have a culture of repentance, we need to be experts in understanding not only what we did, but how what we did affected others. And if you don't know how your sin affected others, ask people around you. It's not a common question. And be patient with that process. Now, I have just struck fear in my own heart, hearing myself say that. So I mean, I've got to sit down with everybody. I've, you know, I have to ask them, how did, how did, I, how did my sin, if you're going to blow up at me, they're going to spend three hours yelling at me. I don't want that. Why, why, don't, why don't we want to do that? It's because we feel threatened, right? Well, it gets worse before it gets better. Not only does David see the original part of his sin, this sin is self-blinding, he sees that he didn't just hurt people, he offended God Almighty, His sin is deeper than he thought. It goes from bad to worse to even worse. I can't imagine it getting worse. It can't. He offended God Almighty. He says against you and you only have I sinned. Uriah did not create the rule of of, of committing adultery. She didn't write that. God wrote that rule. Right? Bathsheba, Uriah, they didn't write the rule of murder. 
God wrote the rule about not murdering. He gave us the Ten Commandments. Not Uriah, not Bathsheba, and not you and not me. So while we can say on some level that we sinned against other people, we hurt other people with our sin, yes. But ultimately, we sin against the only one who made the rule, and that is God Almighty. We've sinned against him. And that is a great offense. Very great offense. And David is cut He falls. He has nothing more when he realizes that he has offended God this way. This is very difficult, isn't it? It's very difficult. So when we think about this, we we have to to move on. David does. He says these interesting words, the very first verse. He says, have mercy on me. We realize that not only does David's sin have a backstory, God's mercy has a backstory too. We can see God's mercy, how it started from the beginning of time all the way up and through all the way to the cross. We can see God's plan of mercy. Watch what David says in verse one. It says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Do you pray? Do you confess your sins like that? God, forgive my sin. Please forgive my sin. And the next sentence you probably say is, I'm so sorry for my sin. But what David says is, forgive my sin because of your great love. I'm calling on an attribute that I know is true about you. And what he's doing is he's recalling the steadfast love of God. He's recalling the merciful characters of God. And in verse 7, the most important verse in all of Psalm 51, many commentators say this, and I agree. Psalm 51, verse 7, most important verse. Purge me with hyssop. This is the backstory that we really need to focus on. Purge me with hyssop. Okay, so what hyssop is, is a collection of, of wild shrub twigs maybe six to 10 of them or so. And they've all got little foliage on the end. And what you do is you dip this paintbrushy kind of thing uh, into the, the um, re- refining and cleansing liquid and you take it to the center and you, you basically you know, sprinkle them with this cleansing liquid. It's like, it's like a shower, if you will. And so you, know, you, you get dirty and this liquid comes on you and now you're clean. So think about playing soccer, getting dirty. Oops, I'm gonna go take a shower. And that's kind of what the hyssop represents. One of the favorite hymns I have is, uh, there is a fountain. We didn't sing it this morning, but it's okay. I'm gonna, I, I kind of sang it to myself, but this is my favorite hymn. There is a fountain filled with soapy water given by Emmanuel's faucet, and sinners who jump into the bubble bath lose all their dirty stains. My mom is saying no. No, mom, it's not, that's not the words. Now, that's what I want, guys. I want a soapy bubble bath to clean my sin. It's warm, it's inviting, it's wonderful. But listen to the words. There is a fountain, ah, filled with blood. Okay, we went from a G movie to a horror movie. Blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath, not just a little, the flood. Lose all their guilty stains. That's the backstory to God's mercy. It's the cross of Christ. The hyssop isn't dipped into liquid soap. It's dipped into blood. And the blood is sprinkled. Look, God is coming at you. He's looking for blood. And you take this hyssop, you sprinkle blood on you, and he's got his blood. And the blood comes from the sacrificial lamb. The lamb of God. 
Christ. Don't you see? That's how we can face our sin. That's how you and I can be patient to listen to what our sin did to other people. Because there's no threat. There might be a consequence in the here and now. Yes, of course. But there's no threat from the Lord. The deep offense that God has, has been erased because of Jesus' blood, not mine. It's amazing when Nathan says, you're the man. David says, I have sinned against the Lord. The very next sentence that Nathan says is, the Lord has removed your sin. What a beautiful picture. And if you don't know the backstory of God's mercy, you will conclude that God is unjust and unfair. Think of the person that you're fighting with the most right now. And then God convicts him and shows him his sin. And you're like, yeah, you know, you're like, you have all this righteous indignation. Finally, this person gets the perspective that I've had all along. And then the next words, your sin has been removed. You'd be like, wait, what? That's not fair. Punish him. But the the truth is that the punishment has already been fulfilled in Christ. That's the gospel. That's the only way we can have a culture of repentance. If I, if, if I told my daughter, one of my daughters, I won't mention them by name, but I said, hey, you ever get in trouble at school and you come home to me and your teacher tells me you're in trouble, you're going to get kicked out of this house. I will utterly reject you as a Heinrichs and you will be homeless. And then, hey, you know, one of my daughters comes home. They've been in trouble. Their teacher's going to, you know, call me or something. You know, dad, can I see your phone? You know, she's crashing it. She she just is going to try to hide the sin. Of course she is. And well, she should. Well, she should because she has a threat of absolute and utter rejection. Of course she's going to hide her sin. Are you acting like that in the church? Are you acting like that in your community? Are you acting like that in your relationships? Do you fear some kind of threat? But in the blood of Christ, the threat's been taken away. And anything might, in reality, if my daughter said that to me, I'm not going to do that. They're going to be a Heinrichs. They're going to make it, of course. They're not going to be kicked out of my family. And anything I do to them is going to be for their good. It's going to help them learn the lessons they're supposed to learn. It's going to help them improve and understand things. I'm for them. I'm not trying to hurt them. Maybe today, when you face your sin, you need to hear this. Because of the hyssop cleansing you, God is for you. Well, now he stands completely forgiven. And we've gotten to verse 7. We have 11 more verses to go. 11 verses that are mainly not about forgiveness. You read those verses, it's all about joy and restore to me a clean heart and to, you know, my, open my lips, I will sing praises, I'll turn back sins, all of these things that are, that are outside of basically what he's saying in verse 1 through 7 about forgiveness. So here we have, listen, we have the great finale of forgiveness. You can write this down. Forgiveness is not enough for David. Forgiveness is not enough. He does not just want to be forgiven. He wants to be restored. He doesn't just want to be pitied by God. He wants to be loved by God. He wants God to come in and give him a new heart, 
a new spirit. Why does he say, give me a new spirit? So I can be willing to obey you tomorrow. I don't want to want to have an affair. I don't want to want to stay home instead of going off to battle. I don't want to kill Uriah. I don't want to want that. I want to please you. Give me a new heart. Give me a new way of thinking. And then I will do the following. I will teach transgressors, not my ways, your ways. I will turn sinners around and back to you. I will open my lips and sing your praises in the presence of these people. I will praise you. I will sing of your righteousness. This is, this is the, the goal. This is the grand finale of being forgiven. And now that you have been forgiven in the gospel, face those people that you're fighting with. Meditate on your sin. Why? Because you want to move them. You want to move yourself through this process to become forgiven and then to be restored. That's what a culture of repentance does. It's interesting. We say, I want to give God glory. And that's true. It's biblical thought. I I think that's good. But it's always kind of, I don't know, it, it feels a little incomplete to me. And maybe that's just me. But when I think, give God glory, and I stop, okay, all this has happened, he's forgiven me, okay, now I look at God's face, I've done all these great things for him, I'm grateful, I look at God's face, I kind of see, give him glory, his response is, you know, a quiet appreciation, a gentle nod of approval, yes, I've been glorified, thank you, yes, right? Or, or the other thought I have is, you know, I get to heaven and by Jesus' blood, I get in. Only by Jesus' blood. And he sees me come and he's like, all right, Heinrichs, come on. Get in there. Kicks me, you know, get in there. You made it. Whatever. You know, he kind of grudgingly lets me in. Kind of reluctantly. But, you know, Christ did what he did. So come on in. But that's not the picture, is it? The last few verses of Psalm 51 talk about God delighting. God delights. God is happy. God is overjoyed. God is rejoicing. He's celebrating. Do you have a picture of that? You know, do you think of God rejoicing over you as you come to terms with your sin, receive his forgiveness, and then grow in your faith to to actually turn other sinners away and praise him? Is God, do you see him rejoicing? Think about the prodigal son coming home and the father sees him from far off and the father runs to the son, tears in his eyes, hugs him, and the very next thing, after a robe and sandals and a ring, let's have a party. This is the God. He's like, let's rejoice. Let's have a great time. This is the reception I'm gonna get as I come into heaven all of my junk, all of my mess, I come into heaven. He's going to see me from afar, get down, and run to me. He's going to be so happy that I'm here. In fact, I'm starting to think that when you come to church, maybe a better idea for you after having been greeted by some people and nice people, get your coffee, you should think God is overjoyed to see you here in church to worship him. As you're singing grateful gratitude songs to him, as you praise songs to him, he's singing over you, Zephaniah 3. He is singing over you. He is taking great delight, says Zephaniah 3, great delight over you. Now, we don't give that kind of, we don't, we don't make God happy like God makes us happy, right? He's 
He's independent. He doesn't rely on us. He's not a sad little person or something, and we come along and we make him happy. He's not like a human being. So you kind of have to think differently about this. You can't put God down here on our level. But, but there, it's undeniable in God's mysterious way. He allows us to be a part of him being joyful. And, and it, I, I, the best way I can think about it is on Christmas morning. So on Christmas morning, you come downstairs and you got five-year-olds, you know, not 20 years old. You got, 12, you got five-year-olds. And, and we lavish gifts on our, you know, like 30 gifts on our five-year-olds. And they give us one or two. And to be honest, the one or two gifts I get from my five-year-old is not worth much. It really isn't. I mean, it's a, a painting, a, a bracelet, a poem. I mean, it doesn't add anything to my life. I don't, I don't go out and use these things. I'm giving my daughter a bicycle. I'm giving them something useful, all these gifts. You know what I'm saying? But don't for one minute think that the bracelet, the, the poem, and the painting is not valuable to me. It doesn't add anything. Yeah, but I love it. I frame it. I put it on my wall. I put it in my office. I love the gifts of my five-year-old kids. That's how we give gifts to God. It doesn't add anything to him, but the Bible's clear. He loves him. So think, yes, give God's glory. Give God glory, but give God joy. Let's pray. Father, I pray as we look at Psalm 51 that you would help us to face our sin and be patient to understand the effects that we've had on others both in our community, in our interpersonal relationships, in our friendships. God, I pray that you would help us to be patient. Help us to be the foremost expert on how our sin affects others. I pray that you would move us into this great mercy that we find coming from the blood shed on the cross for the remission of sins. And now that we have been forgiven, I pray that you'd move us move us to help others see. Move us into praise and worship. And then help us to lift our eyes to see the expression on your face as the Bible instructs us that you are taking great delight in us, that you were running to us with tears in your eyes, that you are joyful. Help us to have that vision, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.